You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you again. I want to rush to express my gratitude to Pastor John for extending me the invitation and for allowing me to preach the Word of God in your hearing. Please uh, meet me in the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew, chapter 6, and today we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 34. Matthew 6, 19 to 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Hmm. Uh, this section of Matthew chapter 6 belongs to what could be considered as Jesus' magnum opus. His most excellent theological manifesto, which begins in chapter 5 and goes all the way to chapter 7, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he's addressing his disciples, a group of uneducated, ordinary 
peasants who had grown up with a kind of Jewish idealism of what it meant to be human. And here they were at the feet of Jesus, the greatest pedagogue that has ever lived, listening to the most unnatural things they have ever heard. For Jesus was teaching them the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be great, what it means to be right before God, according to God, not the religious elite. You have heard it said, but I say to you, up until this point, he has taught him about the relationship with others, about the relationship with God, even about the relationship with themselves. But now in verses 19 to 34, he's about to teach them about the relationship with the world, the relationship with the attractions of this world. And, you know, Jesus knew what he was talking about, not only because of his divinity, but, but also because in his humanity, he was tempted by the same things. Right before the beginning of his ministry, the prince of this world, Satan, took him to the pinnacle of a mountain. And on that mountain, he showed him the, the kingdoms of the world. And he made a very compelling proposition. He told Jesus, Jesus, here are your gods. Power, prosperity, and security. They are yours only if you worship me. Ha. And the question that is before us is the following. If, if Satan had the audacity to... To tempt Jesus with, with the things of this world, what makes us think that he will entice us with the same things. You see, Satan has been studying human behavior since the Garden of Eden. And, and he knows that, that, that every human being is the same. That he knows that, that every human being longs for the same things. That is why he continues to offer us earthly treasures. And he has succeeded. So much so, that he, he has even persuaded us to Christianize these gods. And that sounds strange, doesn't it? And you may be wondering, how, how, has, how have we Christianized these gods? Well, when we have concluded that power, prosperity, and security are signs of God's favor over a person or over a nation. But you know... God never promised that. Satan did. And now he's telling his disciples these things because, because he wants them to be aware of, 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 of the dynamics of this worldly temptation and its consequences. And if we pay attention to verse 25, listen to what he says because he's connecting his argument from verse 19 to 24 with his argument from verse 26 to 34. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat, or about what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and, and the body more than clothing? You see, this therefore is there for a reason. To connect the former argument with the latter argument. To show us how anxiety is connected to our attachment to this world. 
when he begins his argument from verses 19 to 24 to give us the cause of our anxiety. He wants his disciples to understand why they get anxious. And at the foundational level, he's telling us and he's telling his disciples that the cause of our anxiety is to treasure that which we cannot retain. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is a difference and there is a fine distinction between what we own and what we treasure. You see, what we own can be for our good. We can enjoy it. We can have a good time with it. But when we treasure what we own, what we own owns us. And that is why he is he's making this argument. He wants them to understand that the more we have, the more we realize that what we have does not satisfy. So we desire more. And without knowing it, we become servants of that which, which is required in our total allegiance but can never satisfy us. And brothers, to, to treasure that which we cannot retain is idolatry. You see, an idol is, is something that we treasure to give us what only God can give us. Identity, meaning, and purpose. And Paul in the book of Romans chapter 1 tells us that idolatry is to exchange our devotion, our serving to God for someone or something else. And the problem with idolatry is that like cancer, it affects our whole being. You see, it begins in the heart, moves to the mind, and it controls our will. And that is why Jesus, in verses 19 to 24, gives the disciples three diagnostic tests to help them, to help us by way of implication to locate what we treasure. The first thing that he is doing uh, uh, is, is to focus on the heart. And he focuses on the heart because the heart is the epicenter of our emotions. The heart is the epicenter of our feelings. And he says that if you want to identify what you treasure, you must examine what you love. We see that in verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen to this. Watch this. Verse 21. For where your treasure is there. There. Your heart will be also, Jesus wants us to understand that our hearts pursue what we love. And if we are honest, the idols that we treasure are derived from the gods of this world. Power, prosperity, and security. When we talk about power, we're talking about recognition. We're talking about control. We're talking about autonomy. We're, we're talking about positions. When we talk about prosperity, we're talking about wealth. We're talking about riches. We're talking about materialism. When we talk about security, we're talking about health. We're talking about comfort. We're talking about safety. We're talking about freedoms. You see, and we pursue these things because in them we find meaning. That is why St. Augustine used to say that sin is misplaced love. 
And Jesus is telling us not only that, that our heart is where our treasure is. He's also telling us that the things that we treasure here on earth are fleeting. They are temporary. They are here today and gone tomorrow. And the reason why we get anxious is because we know in our heart of hearts that these things are hevel, vapor. They are like wind. That is why we get anxious. Because we love these things knowing that they can be gone tomorrow. But not only that, Jesus is telling us this morning that if you want to identify your treasures, examine what you desire. Verse 22 says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus is telling them and he's telling us that that covetousness begins its journey through the eye. Because the eyes focus on what the mind lasts. And we lost what we don't have but wish to have. And the reason why we covet is because we are not content with God's provision in our lives. That is why we're always coveting that which our hearts desire and love. And that is why he uses this rare illustration, since the eye is the window into our soul. And Jesus is telling us that the eye is the lamp that can either lighten or darken our whole being. And the point here is that covetousness darkens our being because it is tethered to the world. It is tethered to earthly treasures. But Jesus doesn't leave it there because he moves from the heart to the mind and now he moves to the will. And the reason why he moves to the will is because he wants us to understand the magnitude of this disease. And he tells us that if you want to identify what you treasure, you must examine what you worship. Listen to what he says in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. It's interesting because the word that he uses for serve is the Greek word for slave. And he's, he's after something. He wants us to understand that that which we love more than God enslaves us. Because he controls our wills. And he's saying that you cannot, be, you cannot be controlled by God and be controlled by the things of this world. Why? Because both are demanding your total surrender. Isn't it interesting when Satan tempted Jesus, he offered him power, prosperity, and security, but added a qualifier. I'll give them to you if you tie your will to mine. If you worship me, if you serve me, Jesus wants us to understand this morning that whatever you love controls you. 
that whatever you serve controls your emotions, controls your feelings, controls your behavior. The reason why you're happy today, sad tomorrow, is because perhaps, perhaps you have exchanged your devotion to God for something other than God. And that which you are serving cannot satisfy you. Cannot fulfill your deepest longings. What you love is what you covet. What you covet is what you worship. And what you worship controls your will. David Foster Wallace, a postmodern professor from Emory College, said the following If we are honest, there is no atheism. I mean, he was not the first one who said that. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. That's another sermon. Everyone worships something. The only option we have is what we are going to worship. The only reasonable reason to worship a spiritual God is that all other gods will eat you alive. If you worship money, you will never have enough. If you worship beauty and your body, you will always feel ugly. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and fearful. If you worship intellect, you always feel dumb because you're not as smart as you appear. The malicious thing about all these forms of worship and idolatry is that they happen at the unconscious level. Unless you have a God that can give you what you seek, you will destroy yourself. Ironically, David Foster Wallace committed suicide when he was 46. What are you treasuring? What moves your emotions and your feelings, your allegiances? You see, this issue of idolatry um, is very pervasive because it applies to every arena of our lives, including politics. I went there. My favorite English preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said the following regarding this, the relationship between accumulating treasures here on earth and politics. Pay attention. When election time comes, do we find ourselves believing that one party's point of view is entirely correct and the other completely wrong? If that is what we think, let me suggest that we are accumulating treasures here on earth. If we think the truth exists, in one party or another, if we analyze our motives, we will discover that we are protecting something, eager to have something, or anxious to lose something. What is the reason? What is it when we are really honest with ourselves that is behind our political opinions? If you are sincere, you will realize that behind these reasons, there are treasures that you have accumulated that you do not want to lose or are interested in acquiring. To what extent are our feelings involved in this matter? How much bitterness is there? How much violence? How much anger and contempt and passion? Apply that test. And again, we find that the feeling is aroused by the concern with accumulating treasures here on earth. Are we looking at these things with a kind of biblical detachment and objectivity or not? 
What is our attitude toward all these things? Do these things control us? If they do, it is because we are concerned about accumulating treasures here on earth. And he is right. Let me remind you, I'm sure you know this, but the kingdom of God has nothing to do with what happens here. His agenda continues. His plans continue. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's not depending on a red wave, blue wave, purple wave, whatever color wave to accomplish his purposes. He is the Lord of Lords and he is the King of Kings. Do you believe that? If so, then why are you so anxious? Why are you so anxious? Remember, your true citizenship is not here, but in heaven. Therefore, therefore, Look at these things with a biblical detachment. I am not saying that they don't matter. I am saying that they don't have ultimate importance. Amen? But Jesus in his love moves from correction to the remedy. He moves from exposing the treasures that we are holding tightly to the cure of our, for our anxiety. And he says that the remedy for our anxiety is to value that which we cannot lose. And the first thing that he wants us to observe, the first thing that he wants us to, to, to look at is his providence in creation. Listen to what he says in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You see, that sounds and, and, and feels simplistic, but it is brilliant. He doesn't leave it there. Verse 28, verse 29. Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. I tell you. Even Solomon, you know, his glory was not arrayed like one of this. The first thing that God, that Jesus wants us to do is to observe the providence of God in creation. Go to the park. Look at the birds. Who feeds them? God does. Look at the lilies. Who dresses them? God does. Once you have done that, the second thing that he wants us to do is to consider our position. Listen to what he says. Verse 26, are you not of more value than they? If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, all you of little faith? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your father, he knows that you need them all. Since you went outside and looked at the birds and looked at the lilies, and, and, and now you understand that God is providing for them, don't you think that he will provide for you the crown of his glory? Whom, whom, you whom he has saved. You whom he has adopted into his family. You whom through Christ you have access to him. And you can call him father. If he provides for his creation. He'll provide what you need. And that's where 
And that's where our problem lies, right? Because the promise that God has made to us is that he will provide what we need, not what we want. What we need, not what we want. Sometimes God gives us what we want, and sometimes the worst thing that God can do is to give us what we want. The promise is that he will provide for our needs. Do you believe that? But Jesus doesn't leave it there because the third thing that he wants us to do is to reorient our devotion. Not only to observe his creation, consider our position, but there is a call to action here. And it requires a decision. Jesus wants you. Jesus wants me. He wants his disciples to make a decision. And it is to reorient our devotion. Verse 33 and 34 says, seek first. You see, not second. Not third. Not later. Not after that. First. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything that you need will be provided. I mean, you see, you understand what Jesus is doing here? You seek God. You seek his kingdom. And he will provide for all your needs. Therefore, do not be anxious. Therefore, do not be fearful. Therefore, relax. You see, and he was talking to peasants. He was talking to people who did not have what we have. He was talking to people whose needs needed to be addressed on a daily basis. Which is the reason he told his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, ask your father to give you what? Not a savings account, but your daily bread. Think about it. That God will provide your daily bread. That God will provide everything that we need. Therefore, we should not be anxious. Colossians 3, 1, 4 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek. You see? It is an act of the will. It is a volitional decision. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The cause of our anxiety is to treasure that which we cannot retain. And Jesus is telling us that the remedy for our anxiety is to value that which we cannot lose. Pay attention to this. Locate your fears. And there you'll find your gods. Reorient your devotion to heaven. And there you'll find the one who will give what your soul needs meaning identity purpose and a peace that surpasses all understanding 
Let me close with this. 1 Peter 5, 6 to 9. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Listen, watch this. Casting all your anxieties on him. He can take them. All your worries, he can take them. And here's a promise. I'll leave you with this promise. Because he cares for you. Because what happens in your life matters to God. Because your suffering is not in vain. It matters to God. And we have somebody in heaven who understands us. And his name is Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the promises that you have made. For we know that we can trust you. For we know that you will hold us fast. Oh, Father, let us be reminded that this world is passing by. That we're just pilgrims here on earth. Help us to have a heavenly mentality. Help us to treasure what we cannot lose. Father, help us to understand, to treasure what we cannot lose. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.